Welcome to a 2015 Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Speaker Series podcast, sponsored by Kessler Foundation. Guest speaker, Dr. Peter Arnett, presents Cognitive Health and Coping in MS. Dr. Arnett is an Associate Professor, Director of Clinical Training, and Director of the Penn State Sports Concussion Program at Penn State University. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, December 3rd, 2015 at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research. Hello, everybody. Um, it's great to be back here. Always uh, fun to come to Kessler and, and uh, meet with some folks who do a lot of the same, you know, follow a lot of the same kinds of lines of research that we have, have at Penn State. So it's always good to kind of have a chance to talk with people, um, share ideas, uh, present some of the work that we've been doing. So today I'm going to focus uh, on cognitive health and coping. And so hopefully what, what you'll get out of this, what, what, you know, sort of the end point is that uh, coping is really important in MS. And if people use good adaptive coping, it can help them in terms of depression, it can help them in terms of functioning better in terms of their cognitive functioning. And then also I'm going to talk about some cognitive health uh, issues relating to uh, things like uh, engaging a lot of mental stimulation, physical exercise, social activity, all things that might be beneficial to people with MS. So um, it's really... Um, Sort of, sort of the theme that can come out of this is that, uh, you know, positive things that people with MS might be able to do to improve their functioning, either in terms of their cognitive functioning, depression, and so forth. Um, so feel free to ask questions too as I go through this. So um, at any rate, just the disclosures, uh, some of the contributors, so current graduate students, and I think Lauren's in there uh, from former graduate students, Lauren Strober, hopefully she's in there somewhere. Yeah, she's there. Um, <laughs> And, uh, okay, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about depression first, and then I'll get into some of the other stuff. So um, depression is very common in MS. Uh, the prevalence rate is about 50% compared to only about 8% in the general population. It's associated with a lot of different things, uh, problems in MS, like cognitive dysfunction, like uh, maladaptive coping, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later, um, associated with uh, lower levels of well-being and higher levels of disability. I'm just briefly, don't panic when you see the model, okay? It's complicated. I always get teased by my colleagues about the complexity of this model, especially Ralph Benedict. I'll name some names. Um, but I just want to give you kind of a, a framework for how we uh, have looked at this over the years, okay? And so depression is in the middle here. And the way the model works is that the risk for depression in MS really doesn't start until somebody gets MS, okay? If you look at retrospective accounts of people's reports of um, problems with depression before they were diagnosed, um, there's no higher prevalence than the general population. So the risk really does seem to begin with the onset of MS. So there are all these disease-related kinds of things that occur, um, MS disease factors, so <coughs> lesion burden, immunologic uh, anomalies, uh, atrophy, things like that. And then these things do, many of these things do directly predict depression, but they far false, uh, they, they, uh, fall far short of explaining all of the variants in depression. So there are definitely some mediational factors. There's some common sequela that may stem uh, from these uh, primary disease factors like fatigue, like pain, like physical disability, like cognitive dysfunction, and so forth, all of which um, to varying degrees have been shown to be associated with depression. And then you've got some possible moderators like social support, stress, 
negative cognitive schemas, so the tendency to kind of filter uh, the world in a negative fashion, and then coping, which is going to be the biggie that I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going to talk about today. Not only in terms of um, moderating the impact of some factors on depression, but also moderating uh, things like fatigue on uh, cognitive functioning. And so uh, as far as depression um, in MS, uh, there really hasn't been as much attention paid to functional ability or things like uh, uh, employment, quality of life, and especially cognitive health habits. So I'm going to focus a lot in this first part of the talk on cognitive health habits in relation to depression. Then the second part, I'm going to talk about coping. All right, so as far as assessing depression, this can be a little bit tricky. So I'm just going to talk briefly about this uh, in terms of the complexities of diagnosing depression in MS. So the problem is that you've got all these overlapping symptoms like fatigue, psychomotor retardation, decreased con concentration, problems with sleep. All of these are typical symptoms of depression, uh, neurovegetative symptoms, usually what we refer to them as. But they're also common symptoms of MS. So what do you do? when you've got somebody who's reporting these kinds of problems um, and they have MS. Are, are these MS symptoms or are they depression? Okay. So one of the things, uh, one of the solutions that people have come up with in the uh, research literature is just simply not to include any measures that include these kinds of symptoms. So let's just throw those out, throw out the neurovegetative symptoms and then focus on mood symptoms, um, negative evaluative symptoms like a person's perception, uh, of things and then we can get an accurate picture of depression. We don't have to worry about this overlap. Okay? And the best available self-report measures I think for looking at this are first of all the Chicago multi-scale depression inventory developed by uh, Dave Neinheis and he, his colleagues first in 1995. And there's essentially three subscales to the CMDI. There's a mood subscale, a negative evaluative subscale, and a neurovegetative subscale. And as you can see, just an example of some items uh, for mood, sad, glum, or low, uh, for evaluative, feeling inferior, worthless, a failure, and for vegetative things, you know, some of the things that I mentioned before, like sleep problems, feeling exhausted or tired, um, you know, sexual dysfunction, poor appetite, and so forth. And again, um, what was suggested um, from Neinheis's uh, paper and other follow-up studies is that only mood and evaluative scales uh, be used, and these have been shown to be both reliable and valid for use in MS. Uh, another measure, and this one's probably more commonly used now, um, probably mostly because of its ease of use. It's only seven items. Um, the Chicago Multiscale Depression Inventory is 50 items, so it's a little more involved, takes people longer to, uh, to uh, complete. It's more difficult to score. With the BDI FASCAN, it's only seven items. You can just have somebody filled out in the waiting room, add up the items. If they score four or above, then that's, you know, that's definitely risk for major depression. Um, so it's fairly straightforward, and, um, and it only, uh, again, takes a few minutes, um, and it only includes mood and negative evaluative symptoms of depression. So there aren't any medical kinds of uh, symptoms or some of those neurovegetative symptoms that I uh, mentioned earlier. All right, so now I'm going to talk about cognitive health, and I'll uh, then make the connection between that and, uh, and uh, some things related to depression. So um, some factors that might contribute to cognitive health are things like physical exercise, um, engaging in regular cognitive stimulation, perhaps good nutritional habits, and social engagement, okay? Now, in uh, some work that I've been doing with uh, 
John Randolph, who's at Dartmouth, and Adeta Yukoburua, who is a, a student um, at Penn State who's on internship now, but who's helped with this work. There's John right there, and Dede. Um They have uh, worked, uh, we've worked together on this study where we've tried to explore whether depression is related to cognitive health habits, all right? And the hypothesis is, is that lower depression will predict more engagement in positive cognitive health habits in MS. So if I'm less depressed, then I'll be more likely to exercise, more likely to socialize, more likely to engage in cognitively stimulating things, have better nutrition, and so forth. All right, and as far as our methods, um, we had, uh, for this particular study, 54 participants with MS. You can see they had about almost 15 years of education. EDSS is 4.38, so kind of a moderate level of disability, starting to you know, maybe have trouble walking a significant distance, maybe you know, for some of these patients having to start using a cane or some sort of assistance when walking. Um, and then all the course types represented, but really mostly relapsing, remitting, and secondary progressive. And we, uh, for the data that I'm going to talk about today, we uh, had them complete the BDI fast screen and then the cognitive health questionnaire. And this is the thing um, that uh, John is really the primary developer of this measure. I helped a little bit, but you know, give credit where credit is due. John mainly uh, developed this measure, and then we started including it in our MS studies and, and tried to see whether we could find some associations with depression and um, other important outcomes in MS. And essentially there are four domains, those domains that I talked about earlier. So there are a couple of exercise questions, a couple, uh, or there are three nutrition questions, two social engagement, and a couple of mental stimulation questions as well, all right? And here's, uh, I'm just gonna give you an example of each one, just to give you a flavor of what this measure is all about. So for an exercise example, uh, how much light physical activity or exercise do you get in a typical week? So um, then it defines, you know, tries to operationally define what that would involve. 20 to 30 minutes of mild exercise, like uh, doing gardening, general housework, uh, repairing a bike, uh, walking slowly, uh, and so forth. And so the person rates themselves zero to, um, you know, more than three. And then for nutrition, how often do you eat breakfast in a typical week? And so again, just on a scale where you start with none or never rarely to more than three times uh, to every day, okay? And how often do you socialize with family members other than your partner uh, in a typical week? And so again, it provides a nice operational, whoop, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, um, provides a nice operational definition of, um, of social engagement, so interacting with someone other than your partner for at least 10 minutes at a time. So do you do this never or rarely? Do you do it once, twice, three times, or uh, more than three times in a typical week, all right? And then for mental stimulation, how many times per week do you do something that makes you consider uh, or remember new information? And again, it defines it according to um, you know, some, some examples to give people an idea what uh, what we're trying to get at here. So, so that's the uh, cognitive health questionnaire, the CHQ. And here is what we found. Okay, so here's our, our demographics. I already kind of went over that. So uh, I guess the main thing I didn't really present was the BDI fast screen. So the mean score is 3.1. That's pretty high. Four is the cutoff. So there have been a number of validation studies. One real nice study that Lauren uh, actually just published uh, this year that uh, was consistent with this uh, finding. And um, 
that four is the optimal cutoff. So there have been a couple of other studies that have been published in the literature that have shown the same thing. That's the cutoff that's recommended in the manual. So, you know, we feel pretty confident that that's a pretty good um, benchmark for determining depression. So, you know, that, that's fairly high, a, a mean of 3.1. So there are a lot of people in this sample who are going to, um, you know, exceed that criterion. And you can see as far, uh, th this is not going to be that meaningful, but it's just showing you what the mean scores are on the different uh, items. And I'll come back to uh, some of those in a minute. And you can see the correlations here between the CHQ and the BDI fast screen. Um, so for all of the CHQ questionnaires, uh, sub subscales except nutrition, there's a significant negative correlation. So the nature of the correlation is such that um, people with higher depression engage in less of this stuff, okay? And we did some follow-up analyses as well just to try to figure out, you know, to explore the data in a little bit more detail. And first of all, we, we wanted to look at sex differences to see whether um, male or female patients with MS uh, engaged in more uh, of these kinds of activities than, than the other. And you can see females in both cases for social and uh, mental stimulation, uh, females are significantly higher reporting, doing significantly more of that than, uh, than the males in the sample. Okay. And we also wanted to look at course type differences to see whether uh, really mainly between the relapsing remitting, which is the blue, and then the uh, secondary progressive, which is the orange bar, um, just see whether there were any course type differences. And again, if you remember, there was only like there were only like one or two people in the other two course types. So this is really the only uh, meaningful way to look at it. And sort of surprisingly, the secondary progressive um, reported engaging in more mental stimulation than the relapsing remitting. And uh, you know, uh, I assume most people in the, this room know like the difference between primary and secondary or, or uh, relapsing remitting and secondary progressive MS. Um, well, secondary progressive is more severe. It's like you have to have relapsing remitting first and then sometimes that evolves to uh, secondary progressive, which is more severe. So it's kind of surprising that the more severely affected group would engage in more mental stimulation. I'm not sure why that is, but that's what we found. And so uh, none of the other variables, the illness or demographic variables, were associated with the uh, CHQ. So the EDSS, age or education, none of those were, um, were associated. And so uh, the next thing we did is just to try to control for some of those uh, variables, in particular sex and then course type, uh, that were associated with the CHQ variables. So in this regression, we entered sex first, then depression, um, and then we were predicting uh, the, the CHQ social scale. And the, uh, the uh, R-square change was significant. So still 16% of the variance accounted for, which is a pretty good uh, and a pretty substantial uh, relationship. And then as far as uh, controlling for sex in the case of the CHQ mental stimulation scale, um, again, we control for that by entering it in first in the equation, then depression, predicting the CHQ mental stimulation scale, still significant. Now, when we did this for course, though, because um, remember, course type uh, was uh, for, for the CHQ mental stimulation scale, the course types were different with the secondary progressive uh, folks reporting they're engaging more of that mental stimulation. When we control for course type, uh, then that pretty much eliminated the effect. And so that suggests that course type is meeting this relationship between depression and uh, mental engagement. All right, so why is depression related to these cognitive health variables? Okay. One possibility 
is that decreased depression could lead to improved cognitive health, for example. So if I'm less depressed, I just might be more likely to engage in mentally stimulating things in my daily life. I may be more likely to do the crossword puzzle. I may be more likely to read. Uh, I might be more likely to engage in uh, other mentally stimulating kinds of things. It's also possible that improved cognitive health could result in decreased depression. So um, if I do these kinds of things, if I do a lot of mentally stimulating things in my daily life, that may lead to a reduction in my depression. Okay, and uh, as far as uh, exercise, we already know of a number of studies that have been published in the research literature that show that exercise results in reduced depression. So um, these are studies that have already been conducted showing that when people with MS engage in more exercise, they show a reduction in depression. In fact, the effect sizes are almost uh, you know, at the level of what you get with therapy. So, um, you know, so it's a pretty good effect. And then for social engagement, there are some, you know, a number of studies that have shown that increased social support is associated with reduced depression in MS. It's not just true for MS, it's true for a lot of different populations. Um, okay, so that's uh, the stuff that I'm going to talk about with cognitive health. Um, does anybody have any questions before I go on to talk a little bit about coping? Then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go through that and then I'll, you know, leave some time for some questions at the end as well. But anybody uh, have any questions about the cognitive health uh, study? Um, Josh? I just, um, your secondary progressive, uh, the differences. Mm -hmm. What were the ends in the cells? Uh, the ends were. I think it was like. Um, here, I'll go back to the uh, back to the. It was about twelve and thirty something. Um, let's see. Go back to the. Yeah, there we go. Um, so uh, so thirty nine relapsing remitting and then twelve secondary progressive. So yeah, pr pretty small pretty small sample, especially of secondary progressive. And so um, there might be something idiosyncratic about that. Uh, Sample, given that it is a fairly small, uh, you know, small number of people, so it's definitely uh, an important thing to highlight. Other questions? Uh, yeah. Um, regarding the relapse meeting, what's the average of here's uh, disease diagnosis? The average years of diagnosis? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know. Like, um, I, I I didn't have that in the uh, the slide, and I can't remember. What the you mean like the difference between say the secondary progressive versus relapsing remitting? My question is, uh, is the relapsing remitting uh, if you have a lot of people with early uh, with, uh, like at early phases of diagnosis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they are still coping with the diagnosis of MS? Yeah, yeah. And um, studies have been shown that at the beginning of the disease, mm -hmm. the depression is higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Higher. Mm -hmm. So could the difference between relapsing remitting and progressive? Mm -hmm. uh, be associated with the relapsed remitting uh, patients are still dealing, mm -hmm. learning how to cope. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Um, and I, I think your, your point is a great one. Um, and I, I know it is the case that the relapsing remitting group has had the disease for a shorter period of time. Uh, but most of the people in the study are not recently diagnosed. Like the um, I can't, the mean disease duration was something like 15 years, and so you know there might have been a few people in uh, the relapsing remitting group who maybe just got diagnosed a year ago or a couple years ago. But most people have had the disease for um, you know for a number of years. But you're making a great point, and you're absolutely right. Um, you do tend to see more depression, more distress um, right after the diagnosis. So it's a really you know really great point. But other uh, other questions? 
Uh, some of them were, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't really control for that. Um, you know, uh, that's something we probably should look at. These are, you know, fairly preliminary look at these data. Um, we just finished a study recently, but um, we did collect that information, like not only um, antidepressants they might be taking, but other, uh, you know, other kinds of medication, like disease-modifying medications and so forth. But um, definitely something uh, worth looking at. Okay, so I'm going to uh, move ahead and talk a little bit about uh, coping now, all right? So with this uh, section of the talk, I'm going to talk about the relationship of coping to depression, cognitive function, and fatigue, and uh, you know, different kinds of configurations, all right? So first of all, uh, before I sort of embark on talking about our, our data on coping in MS, I just want to provide a couple definitions of coping. Now, these are really the two most common that you'll see in the literature that are, you know, mainly stem from uh, Folkman and Lazarus's model that uh, describe emotion-focused and problem-focused coping. And emotion-focused coping is usually considered fairly maladaptive. It's not very effective, more associated with depression. Problem-focused coping is t tends to be more adaptive, uh, works better for people associated with lower depression. And emotion-focused coping, the goal is to reduce the emotional distress elicited by a situation. So the person uh, encounters a stress and then focuses on just trying to find ways to reduce that distress. Okay? And again, generally considered uh, to be maladaptive because people who use a lot of that tend to report more depression, more distress in general. So it seems like it doesn't work uh, very well. Problem-focused coping, on the other hand, aims to alter the source of the stress. So um, the person encounters a stress in their daily life. So let's say that um, you know, the person is working with a difficult colleague at work. So rather than just trying to calm themselves down and you know, deal with the negative emotion that might elicit, they might you know, try to proactively um, approach that person, talk with a colleague, do something um, that's uh, more problem-focused to try to deal with that, uh, that particular stress. So these are, these are really the two main ways in which um, coping has been uh, considered in the literature uh, for, for many years. And so uh, in an initial study looking at this, and so we, well, we looked at coping in a little bit different way that I'll, uh, that I'll talk about in a minute, but our objective with this first study um, was to examine whether coping moderates the relationship between uh, cognitive dysfunction and depression, okay? And we had 55 MS patients complete the COPE. This is a different sample from the one that I was talking about earlier, even though uh, the numbers are almost exactly the same. It's a, a totally different group of people. Um, we de measured depression by the CMDI mood and evaluative scale, so that's the, the measure I was talking about earlier where, um, you know, it only includes those uh, uh, depression symptoms that don't overlap with MS symptoms. And then we had a neurocognitive index that included a lot of the usual suspects um, that have been used in a number of MS studies uh, to measure cognitive function, like things like the PACEAT, simple digit modalities test, um, uh, measures of uh, like executive function, like the Tower of Hanoi, um, things like that. And also, um, yeah, yeah, th those, are, those are kind of uh, some of the biggies. And as far as coping, so we define coping a little bit differently. Uh, I, I talked about the emotion-focused and problem-focused dimensions that um, have been discussed a lot in the literature and, um, and initially developed by Folkman and Lazarus. When we first decided to start looking at coping in MS, we took a look at those scales from Folkman and Lazarus. We didn't really like those very well because they're very heterogeneous scales. Um, they, there are many different factors that seem to load onto the emotion focus and problems focus 
uh, scales as they're defined by Lazarus and colleagues and others. And so we wanted to find more unitary measures of coping that we felt would be better psychometrically and allow us to um, look at these relationships a little more systematically, okay? And so avoidance coping is um, one dimension uh, from this COPE measure by Carver and colleagues. And they developed this in response to some of the criticisms of the Lazarus uh, measures that were used, like the Ways of Coping Scale, because they included only items on the scales that uh, all loaded together on the same factor. And so um, the avoidance coping and active coping um, scales are pretty unitary factors. And they, they definitely do overlap somewhat with the emotion-focused and the uh, problem-focused that I talked about earlier. But again, they're much more unitary kinds of dimensions. And, and with avoidance coping, just how it sounds, um, what, what people describe doing when they, um, you know, when they encounter a stress is just to avoid that, to deny that it's stressful, to just behaviorally remove themselves from the situation, mentally disengage from the situation. That's what they're doing in response to stress with avoidant coping. With active coping, um, again, more like the problem-focused approach, um, taking, uh, you know, actively approaching the stress, trying to come up with a solution rather than avoiding it, rather than um, pretending it's not important. And so here's what we found in the study. I'm sort of cutting to the chase pretty quickly with this one. But this graph pretty much uh, has uh, everything that you need to know about this study. And so you've got depression on the y-axis here. And then cognitive ability. So it's taking all those indices of cognitive function that I mentioned and creating a summary z-score. And then uh, on the scale here, you can see they're represented in z-scores where 0 is the mean and then plus 1, minus 1, minus 2, okay? So if you're at minus 2, that's really low. Like minus 2 is going to be like on that very tail end of the distribution. So you're talking about getting down to like the second, third percentile. Um, and even minus 1 is, you know, is, is, is low. You're getting down to like the maybe, uh, you know, 16th percentile, something like that. <clears throat> okay. And so for this particular graph, we've got low avoidance coping and high avoidance coping. Okay. And remember, avoidance coping is maladaptive. If, if you use a lot of this stuff, that's not good. That's probably not going to help you very much in terms of managing your stress. And, and so you can see if you uh, use a low amount of avoidance coping, which is good, right? That's where you want to be. Um, it doesn't really matter where your cognitive function is, whether it's very impaired, um, couple standard deviation below the mean, or really pretty good, a standard deviation above the mean. It really doesn't matter what kind of coping you use. You're not going to be depressed, okay? So if your cognitive function is good, in some ways that's kind of a, a um, you know, uh, if you're using low levels of avoidance coping, that's kind of a protective factor regardless of what your level of uh, cognitive functioning is. But if you're using this more maladaptive coping, so if you're using a high amount of uh, avoidant coping, um, if your cognitive functioning is good, it doesn't really matter. Okay, you're still not going to be depressed. The depression is very low, okay? And it's really no different from, um, you know, the depression level if you're using a lot of the good kind of coping. So it's only when your cognitive function is poor and you're using the maladaptive coping, a lot of avoidant coping. So you can see the depression is really high. You've got a really nice interaction here where, um, you know, as cognitive functioning gets worse, depression is going up if you're using a lot of this um, maladaptive avoidant coping, okay? All right, and then found a similar thing uh, with the active coping. So again, uh, low active coping is not good. High active coping is good. So the more of the active coping you use, the better. All right, and you can see, if you're using a lot of active coping, it doesn't really matter much 
um, what your cognitive ability is, whether you're very impaired or whether you're doing pretty good, okay? Um, you're gonna be okay in terms of depression. It's not really gonna matter, okay? Again, it's only when you're using a low amount of this stuff, so your coping is not good, where um, if your cognitive function is impaired and you're using that, uh, a low amount of that active coping, then your depression is really high. But if your cognitive, cognitive function is good, even if your, co your coping is poor, um, you're using uh, a, a very low amount of that active coping, you're still not gonna be depressed. So you've got this nice interaction where you kinda have to have the maladaptive coping plus the cognitive dysfunction, and then that predicts depression. Okay, we also found some longitudinal support for this as well uh, in a paper that we published uh, uh, a few years after this in 2009 uh, where we did a, a, a longitudinal analysis that was um, uh, who, for whom the lead author was Amanda Rabinowitz, a student who formerly worked in my lab. And uh, we basically looked at coping and cognitive functioning measured at time one um, and then depression measured at time two about three years later. Okay, so we wanted to see if this relationship would hold if we looked at it longitudinally. And so we looked at coping at time one um, and we looked at cognitive functioning at time one with the notion that if these things are interacting together over time, then um, that might be likely to predict depression later on. Okay? And we created an adaptive coping index uh, with this study. So we kind of combined the active coping and the avoidant coping. So if you use a lot of active coping and a small amount of avoidant coping, that's good. So you're gonna be high on that uh, in terms of your adaptive uh, coping. But if you're uh, using a low amount of active coping and a high amount of avoidant coping, those things together are going to um, result in you um, having maladaptive coping. So we, we try to sort of combine these two types of coping into a unitary index to um, take both into consideration. Here's what we found. So these lines here, this is looking at things in a little bit different fashion, but um, this line here relates to people who are showing cognitive problems. This line relates to people who are not showing any cognitive problems. And you can see if you're using a high level of adaptive coping, it again doesn't matter um, where your cognitive functioning is. Your, your depression is gonna be fairly low. But when you're using a low amount of adaptive coping, so um, if you're cognitively impaired, then your depression is gonna be higher. Now these depression scores are not that high. You can see these are T-scores. These guys are, uh, you know, maybe 53. That's not really that high. This was a significant interaction, but, um, you know, the effect size wasn't that huge, and we're not talking about really clinical depression here. But nonetheless, it was consistent with the previous data that we had uh, collected and where we looked at things uh, cross-sectionally. So we found the, uh, some longitudinal support for this. I think I'll skip that for now. So basically, as far as a model predicting depression, if you use a high amount of avoidance coping, a low amount of active coping, and you have cognitive dysfunction, you're probably gonna be depressed. On the other hand, if you use a low amount of avoidance coping and a high amount of active coping, and you have cognitive dysfunction, you're not gonna be depressed, all right? Okay, so that, um, that pretty much sums up the stuff that I was gonna talk about in terms of uh, coping and uh, cognitive dysfunction and depression. So now uh, what I wanna talk about, um, which is something I'm sure near and dear to the hearts of a lot of people in this lab, is fatigue, okay? And fatigue is something which I'm sure you've probably heard from John DeLuca and others in this lab, um, is something that people have looked at over and over again in relation to cognitive dysfunction, and people typically don't find anything, okay? Which is really surprising, right, when you think about it. When you're really fatigued 
and uh, you, you feel like you can't focus, you can't concentrate, you can't remember things as well. And that's what people with MS say as well. But when you use things like the fatigue impact scale and then you correlate that with our typical cognitive measures, um, most of the time we don't find anything. Okay? And that's really surprising. You know, it seems to fly in the face of you know, just something very intuitive, I think, to all of us, where when we feel like we're more fatigued, um, we feel like our cognitive function is not as good. We're, we're making more mistakes. Um, our processing speed is not as good. We're not remembering things as well. Uh, but in fact, when you look at the empirical data in MS, there's no evidence to support that, or very little. And so that's where coping comes into the, uh, the equation, uh, where we wanted to, since we, we saw this as a very powerful moderator, of the relationship between cognitive dysfunction and depression in MS, we wanted to see if it might moderate that relationship between cognitive problems and fatigue in MS. So maybe that's the missing link, is that there's no direct relationship between fatigue and cognitive dysfunction, but when you take into consideration coping, that's where you might find something. So that was sort of the, um, the conceptual backdrop for this study. This is a paper that we just published last year. Um, with the lead author of uh, Dede, uh, Yukwa Barua, uh, again a student currently in my lab. And so we wanted to look at this uh, stuff longitudinally. And we measured coping and fatigue at time one, okay? Um, and then we uh, measured cognitive functioning at time two, all right? And then we had an adaptive coping index that was again created by, you know, really identically to what we did with the other study where we just combined the active and the avoidant coping scales. So then if you're, you know, you kind of have everything on the same metric, if you're higher on the scale, then that's better. If you're low on the scale, that's worse. Okay, and here's what we found. Um, uh, nice interaction of these things. And so let me just sort of uh, walk you through what we found here. So you can see on the y-axis, you've got cognitive functioning, again, um, in z-scores. So zero's there, and then you've got in the positive and then the negative direction. Um, and then on the uh, x-axis, you've got low fatigue impact and then high fatigue impact, okay? So these are the people that, that are reporting a lot of fatigue, okay? And this is the coping, so the lines are coping. The solid line is, um, is where they're using more avoidant coping. The dashed line is where they're using less avoidant coping. So, so again, using a low amount of uh, avoidant coping is good, right? And so when people did that, it really didn't matter where their fatigue was. You can see that cognitive function was pretty good if they used a low amount of avoidant coping. Okay? So again, it didn't really matter whether fatigue impact was low or high. What, where it mattered, though, was with people who were using a lot of the avoidant coping, the more maladaptive coping. And as you can see, where things really uh, come into uh, you know, sharp focus, I think, is when fatigue impact is high. So the fatigue level is high, and they're using a lot of avoidant coping, then uh, there is a relationship with cognitive functioning. There, there's, uh, they're, they're showing much lower cognitive functioning here compared with um, the group that has a low amount of fatigue. Okay? So we found a nice, real nice interaction here, whereby um, when a person had both uh, maladaptive coping, and a lot of fatigue, that's where they, uh, they showed uh, some problems with their cognitive function. All right, so back to the original question. Does coping moderate the relationship between fatigue and cognitive function? Yes, it does. It does appear to, at least in this one particular study. 
Okay, so, um, so that's pretty much what we found. So you know, I think again, kind of the take home message for the talk today is that coping is really important in MS. And, it, and I, I'm really surprised we're at this point in our field where we don't have a coping measure that we routinely use in clinical practice because this is not just something that we found to be important in our studies, but there have been many, many studies in the MS literature that have, have, uh, have shown that um, these kinds of coping variables are associated with depression in MS. So there have been many, many replications showing that either avoidant coping or emotion-focused coping are associated with high levels of depression, and then either uh, active coping or problem-focused coping are uh, associated with low levels of depression. And yet, in, typical, in a cl typical clinical setting, people don't really use a measure of coping routinely, even though it would be fairly easy to do that. And co coping is important for another reason, because we can actually do something about it. You can, you can teach people to approach stress differently. Um, you can do this in therapy, where you can teach somebody how to um, cope with stress in a different way. And so not only is it coping something that seems to be really important in MS, but it's also something we can change, and something that could be um, uh, changed as a result of therapy, uh, or something uh, along those lines. Um, we are trying to develop a sort of a mini cope right now. I think part of the part of the obstacle in terms of uh, you know measuring coping in a you know a typical clinical setting is that the cope is long. It's like uh, you know I think it's like um, you know uh, 60 items maybe something like that. Uh, so it's not really very practical. So Dede, who's the first author in the study that I just presented to you, has been working on trying to develop what we're going to call the mini cope that only has 15 items and just kind of gets those most highly correlated items on each factor. So it's something that you know, conceivably could be used um, pretty easily in clinical practice. And, and so we're still working on that. We've got a paper in the works um, where we've got some data from a couple of different samples. And so we're hoping to get that out sometime soon. And you know, with a goal at some point um, of developing a measure that people could then use in clinical practice to evaluate coping. And, and again, it's a really important thing because we can change coping. And so if somebody is using a lot of avoidant coping, they're not using much active coping, we can work on that in therapy. We can change that and, and hopefully make the person's functioning better. Um, as far as the cognitive health variables, now, this, we're still in the very early stages of trying to look at this, so um, we're, we've de developed this measure. We're still trying to validate it. It does seem to be important. We are finding that um, things like physical exercise, mental stimulation, um, engaging more social activity, all of these things uh, do seem to be associated with uh, depression. And so if um, a person does all, uh, is engaged in a lot of those things, their depression is lower. So and again, that's another thing a person could change. A person could engage in more exercise. They could engage in more mentally stimulating activities. They could socialize more. So again, these are things that people can be taught how to do, that strategies can be developed to, uh, to improve those things. But you know, I think we're, we're, we're at a much earlier stage of development in terms of, um, in terms of the cognitive health measure. Um, we're just starting to develop this. I don't really know of any measure that's routinely used in clinical practice. Again, I think this is something that could be really valuable. When you think about the average person with MS who's getting diagnosed in their 20s or 30s and then living into their 60s, 70s, 80s, that's a long time to have a debilitating illness. And so if you can teach a person to um, engage in better cognitive health habits, to cope better, that could have some really positive implications for, um, for their functioning over a long period of time. And then finally, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about coping, um, I didn't present any of these data today because we're still kind of working on uh, you know, pouring through these data, but one of the things we've also found 
um, in uh, a recent study that we just finished using some neuroimaging data is that um, well, one of the things we, we've tried to do, I, I think there are a couple of people in here who have worked with Anthony Feinstein, and he has a really nice study that was published a few years ago where um, he showed that um, lesion load, atrophy, um, you know, measures of DTI predicted depression, at, you know, like 40% of uh, the variance in depression. We tried to replicate that in our sample, and we could find very little variance accounted for by those variables. And so um, it was a little disappointing, but then when we started looking at coping, that seemed to moderate that impact. So you can take two people who have the same level, I mean, the main thing we've looked at so far is DTI, but you can take a couple people who have the same level of, uh, you know, uh, involvement in terms of, um, you know, how the, uh, how the fiber tracks in their brain are affected. And people who cope better are, are less likely to show depressions. We, we, we found some more really nice interactions with coping, with DTI variables and coping, such that when a person um, uses good coping, there's less likely to be a correlation between um, uh, those fiber tracks, uh, measures of fiber track integrity and depression. So I think that, you know, this is something where coping could be important as well. So even if um, there's something, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, fiber tracks being compromised, that's, that's a place where coping could even uh, potentially have an impact. But, but again, um, that's very preliminary and that's, we still have some work to go in terms of uh, pouring through those data. So, uh, so uh, that is pretty much what I have. And so here's my lab right now in front of the Nittany Lion right there. There he is. Uh, <laughs> but this is the lab this year. And um, some pictures of Happy Valley State College. Um, Mount Nittany in the summer, which looks a lot better than right now with no trees. And then the football stadium, of course. And that's about all I have. Thank you. Does anybody have any uh, questions about things, uh, especially about the latter part? So going back to your second segment about the uh, Okay. Uh -huh. So in terms of your active coping high and low group, were they roughly equivalent in cognitive dysfunction? I'm wondering if active coping actually requires a greater mm. degree of cognitive yeah. resource. Well, there were, there were plenty of people who, uh, you know, who did have cognitive problems who were still able to use active coping. Okay. Yeah. So they, yeah. They yeah, but it's a really good point. I mean, you might wonder, you know, if, if somebody has a lot of, you know, severe cognitive impairments. I mean, I, I don't know what that cutoff is, but it's a, it's a really great point. That's something that, um, you know, we could potentially look at in our data. I mean, do you reach a point where you, you know, you hit a threshold where you just can't use active coping anymore, and so you're kind of forced to to fall back and avoid coping because you don't have the cognitive resources to carry out that more active approach, which is going to at least require some, you know, some cognitive resources. But, but I think that's a great question. Um, it would be worth trying to look at our data to see, you know, is there a cutoff point where, you know, you kind of hit a threshold of impairment cognitively where, you know, you can lo no longer um, employ those uh, active coping strategies. But yeah, yeah, great question. Okay, great. Well, thanks everybody. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks.